0: It's not, it's not an uncommon experience, I have found, that if we pick the Bible, right? if we pick a Bible and we start reading it, I find that it's not an uncommon experience to come across passages, texts, stories, that make us sort of scratch our head and think, what, <laughs> what is this? I'm actually, to be honest, sometimes surprised that some people don't scratch their heads more often when reading the Bible. Because there are all sorts of reasons to get us wondering and making questions. Some stuff in the Bible makes us scratch our heads simply because they were written in a completely different time and cultural context. So that we simply don't have sort of the conceptual framework to make sense of it. And we have to do some homework to be, to, to be able to deal with it. Other things make us scratch our heads because they offend us in different ways. They seem too violent or too narrow or too naive. Sometimes the issue is that those passages have been interpreted and used in violent, narrow, and arrogant ways. And as much as we would like to, we can't simply separate a biblical text from the story of its interpretation. But I'm going a bit off track now, because what I wanted to say is that there are also some passages that make us scratch our head because they're just plain weird. We just don't really know what to do with them. And the passage I want to share with you today is one of those that I have often scratched my head over. Because it's just weird. I want to read it for you and share it with you. It's in the Gospel according to Luke, which we have been following this semester here in OIC. On chapter 10, from verse 21 to 24. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. So says the word of God. Okay, maybe it's just me, but This doesn't really seem straightforward at all. What on earth is Jesus talking about? What things has God hidden from whom? Who are these little children that he is talking about? And most of all, what's wrong with being wise and learned that would make God hide stuff from you? Isn't that just weird? I mean, doesn't scripture themselves encourage us towards wisdom? There's a whole book in the Bible that is essentially about wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes. Or is Jesus just implying that the people around him are not particularly wise and learned? Sounds a bit condescending, doesn't it? Do you see what I mean by, by this being weird and sort of head-scratching material? And do I even dare to try and unravel this? I am, after all, arguably a learned person, right? With higher education in theology and stuff, so maybe it's a bit of a fool's errand for me to try to figure this stuff out. However, I'm not also learned, I'm also stubborn, (laughs) so I'm gonna go for it anyway, and While in a pickle like this, I I think it's always worth remembering that the gospel writers are not writing random stuff, and also that they are not writing down important stuff randomly. Okay. Uh, they are squeezing years of Jesus' ministry and teachings as well as their own theolo- theological reflections in the aftermath of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Right? They're squeezing all of that into a rather short book of 20 or so chapters as we divide them today. And in that exercise, they are thoroughly thinking through what they write down and through how they write it down. This is something we've been talking about a lot lately. lately. In other words, while the gospel writers, they have to leave out a lot, they do put what they put in the gospels in a coherent order, and they do it in such a way that might help us make sense of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the good news, the gospel that he represents. And Luke, of course, who wrote this gospel, is no exception. So when lost, it's actually a good idea to sit down and and think about where you're coming from and also where you're going to rather than just pushing forward. And I have found that the stories that Luke tells right before and right after these sort of cryptic words of Jesus that we have read today, that they open the possibility for a path ahead. In the story right before this one, Luke tells us that Jesus appointed 72 of his followers. So he had a closer group of the 12, and then he had a larger group of following him, and then, you know, also the big crowd. But he appointed 72 of his followers, and he sent them two by two in pairs ahead of him to every town and place and village where he was about to go. So you read about this in Luke 10, just before. So he told him to go in his name, Let them know that he was coming to announce that the kingdom of God was near. Jesus was on his way. Now these 72, they go and they come back with a kind of a joy of epiphany. They had seen and experienced a lot. They had seen people be healed, they had seen demons submit, and people repent in the name of Jesus. They were euphoric. And Jesus is happy for them, but more than for what they saw and what they did, he says that he is happy that they went in his name, and that they came back to tell the story. In other words, he's happy that they trusted him. That they went as he told them and they came back to him. That they trusted him. They were the little children. The ones to whom the father was revealing himself. And I'll get back to why in in a minute. The story Luke tells right after. So this is right before when Jesus says the whole thank you father because you hid these things from the wise and learned and taught it to the little children. Right after this he tells the very well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. Imagine many of you have heard it. An expert in the law asks Jesus, who is the neighbor that he should love in order to fulfill the commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So who is this neighbor that I should love in order to fulfill the commandments? And Jesus answers by telling a story, a story about a man that is beaten up and left to die on the roadside. And a priest and a Levite, both categories of men that were well-versed in the law of Moses, well-educated in that context, they walk past him and they circle around him and avoid him. And then, a Samaritan. And a Samaritan in that context was a religious pariah, An outcast. He comes by and he helps the man. He uses his own resources to relieve this man's pain and to aid him in his situation. Now when Jesus, coming right from what he just said about the wise and learned, when he then speaks of priests and Levites coming from the temple It's not hard to see that those were the wise and learned. But the issue is not really how much knowledge they have or do not have. The real issue, the real defining factor in the parable is relational. It's not about knowledge. The problem with the priest and the Levite is not that they had knowledge about the law of God, but that their knowledge was kept away from their hearts. Their problem is they have no compassion. And because they have no compassion, they misunderstand the law. And as for the 72... They were little children, not because they knew much about anything or even because they had done or witnessed miracles. They were little children because they trusted Jesus. Above their fear of demons, right? above their fear of religious leaders, above their fear of failing, above their skepticism, they trusted Jesus. And by trusting the son, they become little children of his father. That's why they're little children. They're little children with him because the the father is revealing himself in the son. So again, this was not a question of how much knowledge either had. It was also not a question of how much power they had or were able to witness or channel or whatever. In fact, it seems like we could almost navigate between these two categories. The little children and the wise and learned as they are put here. The disciples, they are at risk of misunderstanding what was really the game changer. And the game changer was not the power over demons and disease or whatever it may be, but the closeness of God to them through Christ which Jesus expresses here as having their names written in heaven, which is a way of saying, you belong, you belong. But they can easily misunderstand this. And actually, if you look just a bit earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in the end of chapter nine, just a chapter before, you have the disciples deeply misunderstanding Jesus, and deeply (laughs) misunderstanding power, and attempting to misuse power, and behaving, this time not in a good way, like children. On their way to Jerusalem, Because all this stuff is happening on their way to Jerusalem in the way that Luke tells the story. Jesus and his disciples go by a Samaritan village. And Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along well. That's enough background story for now. But they go by a Samaritan village and the village refuses to welcome them. And refusing hospitality is a strong sign in Middle Eastern culture, especially at that time. They refuse to welcome them. And the disciples ask Jesus and I quote, "Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them?" And Jesus stops them on their tracks and rebukes them. No. Just cut it out. This is not how it works. While the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan kept knowledge away from their hearts and therefore didn't stop to help the man who was beaten. This was the disciples keeping power away from their hearts. Or in any case, away from the heart of Jesus. Jesus. Away from the heart of Jesus. Because in the way of Jesus, knowledge and power always find their way to compassion. This is Jesus who sits by the well with the Samaritan woman. This is Jesus who just, a couple of breaths later, is using a Samaritan to tell them about stopping to help the broken. Knowledge and power always find their way to compassion. Knowledge and power always have their grounding in grace in the way of Jesus. In the way of Jesus, faith is expressed by the way the Samaritan cares for the wounded. By using the power and the knowledge that he had at hand to heal and restore. Because when you have a donkey with you and you have money and resources and you're walking by a person that is half naked, half beaten by the road, you have power and you have knowledge. He stops, he uses whatever he knows about cleaning wounds. He takes oil and cleans the wounds. He puts this man on his donkey and he carries him to an inn and he uses his money to pay and say, take care of him. He uses what he knows and he uses whatever power he has at hand to show compassion and to show grace. Also the wise and the learned can become little children. And we know at least of one that was directly challenged to do just that. And then I jump into another gospel. You can read about Nicodemus in John, the gospel according to John chapter three. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a well-educated man to whom Jesus said, you must be born again. You must become a little child. And Nicodemus struggled with the idea, but also in that story, we see that the key of all of this is Jesus himself and the way that Jesus goes about breaking bread with the poor and tearing down arguments with the powerful. There's something about Jesus that can change our way of seeing ourselves, of seeing the other, and of seeing the world around us. The challenge for Nicodemus was believing that Jesus was indeed the son of God. That he was indeed God himself incarnate. If he could believe that, if he could believe that, he could see the creator and the redeemer as one. And that's a whole theme in the gospel of John, by the way. He could see them as one and understand that this Jesus in front of him could create him anew and reshape how he moved in the world. Reshape how he moved in the world into the likeness of incarnate love, the likeness of Christ. To become a children again, the children of God, one with the Son in the way the son reveals the father. If the disciples could believe that Jesus was indeed the son of God, the creator incarnate, then it made absolute sense that his name commanded human hearts and creations alike. Forgive forgive sins, heal diseases, walk on water, and make water into wine. That wouldn't be the big wonder. The big wonder would be and is not the extent of God's power, but the gracefulness in which it was being expressed in those dusty roads on the way to Jerusalem. That this, this God who is creator is not sending down fire on Samaritan villages, but healing blind people and having long talks into the night with fishermen and tax collectors and being there. For all of us, if we can keep whatever knowledge and power and trust that we have close to our hearts and keep our hearts close to the hearts of Jesus, to the heart of Jesus, then perhaps, then perhaps we will see and let others see what many prophets and kings wanted to see but did not see and to hear but did not hear. The transforming presence of grace in the world. Because this world is full of abuses of power and knowledge. It's full of it. And we don't want to bring more to that table. We've done enough of that in church history. We don't need to do it today. The world is full of abuses of power and knowledge that create wars, that create poverty, that create inequality, that create hatred, that create distance, that create greed and arrogance and death and all of its friends. And too many of us, Forget how to be little children. But then here we have Christ on a road in Jerusalem saying, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children because no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows the Father who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. If we can keep whatever knowledge, power, and trust that we have close to our hearts, and our hearts close to the heart of Jesus, perhaps we'll see the transforming presence of grace in the world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and may he bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world and serve the Lord joyfully.